Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is a colleague of mine. Uh, Aria Velasquez is an audience engagement editor at Slate. When she's not at work, she's probably watching Steven Universe or Real Housewives on Hulu. I like the like platform-specific plug that you put in your bio, by the way. <laughs> like It's not just I enjoy these two television shows. It's like here is where I get them. Yeah, that's... That's where they're available for constant streaming because uh, the cable provider that my mom uses occasionally takes them away. So I have to make sure I can get my fix. I mean, I love that just even when you're not at work, you're you're concerned about audience engagement. <laughs> um, this definitely tracks with my experience of you at my own job um, and the conversations that we get to have. And I'm really looking forward to this. I feel like you and I have been doing mini versions of the podcasts in our like Slack channels for the last 10 months. It's been 10 at months. At least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just constantly we'll be doing the chat and I'll see that I'll have like a, a direct message from you. And it's just like previews of what today's podcast is going to be. <laughs> I'm so excited for this. I am too. I, I, I feel like the world really needs our combined opinions about things. Yeah. It's been languishing in the dark for for far too long. So I hopefully was able to tailor this um, to to some of your specific interests and areas of expertise. I did uh, manage to queer it up at the last possible second because I realized I had two questions about um, something that could essentially be boiled down to heterosexual jealousy, um, which is a real problem that real people have to deal with. But, um, you know, we we can only address so much of it at once. And then I managed to swap it out for some good old fashioned bisexual confusion and dog murdering. Which is just, I saw the dog murdering question come in and I was like, oh, I'm not going to do this on the live chat. This is, this is too delectable a meal. This is a five-course banquet. We had a dog murdering question on the live chat a few months ago, though, didn't we? Yeah, but that was honestly more of a garden variety, like, I live in the country. Oh, right, My neighbor right, was right. always that letting their was, dogs out. It wasn't that the dog had died. It was that they didn't, their dog was not accustomed to dealing with other dogs because he was like an indoor dog or something. I mean, they definitely murdered the dog, but it was very straightforward. It was like, I'm a farmer. I said I was going to shoot the dog. I shot the dog. This one is much more like Peyton Place level drama oh, man. Um, in terms of dog killing. And the dog was it's, – it's intense. It's intense. Like, heads up. Um, it is an intense description of a dog's death uh, for, for anyone out there who's like, I don't feel like that today. But we don't have to start there just yet. First, we get to start with a letter that's kind of adorable because I think it actually exemplifies something that people worry about a lot but doesn't seem to actually happen, which is like, what if my sexuality confuses children? And like normally children are pretty good at rolling with stuff, but this this is like actually that case of what about the children? And so I'm glad we're going to be able to hopefully help out an actual child who is confused by adult sexuality. In an age-appropriate way, by yes. the way. Anyways, I, I'm going into way too much detail. Um, would you please read uh, our first letter? Uh, yes. Explaining orientation to daughter. I had a talk with my eight-year-old daughter the other day, and I think I made a big mistake. A lot of relatives have constantly been asking her things like, do you have a boyfriend? And while we have already talked basics and consent, 
I wanted to make sure she knew about other sexual orientations. My husband and I are both bisexual. We are obviously monogamous now, but we have dated other people of the same sex in the past. I sat my daughter down and explained this to her, which led to a lot of confusion and anxiety. Her friend Annie's parents are getting a divorce due to her father wanting to marry another woman. My daughter's friend told her this. My daughter has now become very anxious that my husband and I are going to divorce, although our marriage is great, saying, Daddy and I love each other, but we are both but we are attracted to both genders has made this worse. My husband bumped into his straight married male friend in the grocery store, and in the car on the way home, my daughter started to cry and asked if that was going to be her new daddy. She did the same thing when I stayed after school for a few minutes to talk with her female teacher. How can I fix this? She does see a therapist once a week for some anxiety issues, but I don't want to make a bigger deal of this than it needs to be. Oh, man, this poor kid. Yeah, I feel bad for this kid. Um, Eight years old is a very confusing point in life. I was, when I was seven slash eight, I was uh, very afraid of Y2K and the census. So I really feel oh where gosh. this anxious child is coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's definitely the age where a lot of your friend's parents are getting divorced for the first time. And that's kind of one of the earlier ages where you can really understand what divorce means. Um, and so this is something that it sounds like is already hard for her. And she already has like a peer who is going through something that she's really afraid of. Um, so it, it makes sense that she's kind of latching onto this. And, you know, it's it's weird that a lot of your relatives have been constantly asking her if she has a boyfriend. I feel like that's a weird thing to ask an eight-year-old, especially constantly. So maybe with some of your relatives, you can say something gentle like, hey, cool it with asking my eight-year-old if she has a boyfriend. Like, she's eight. She's eight. But yeah, I think um, when you say like, uh, did you make a mistake? Some of this is just you, you have an anxious kid who's already really worried about the possibility of divorce. Um, and and this might not have been avoidable. Um, and the things that you can do are to like reassure her things like, no, we're not getting divorced. Your father and I are very happy together. Um, or if she says something like, you know, <laughs> uh, is this guy going to be my new daddy to just like not like to laugh at it, but to just be like, no, of course not. Um, this is a friend. And, and it, you know, if it feels helpful in those moments to say, like, you know, what are you afraid of? Like, why why do you worry that this friend is going to, like, take somebody's place in the family? Like, to to really stop and kind of, like, check in with her because right. she's, like, in those moments. Like, like it's definitely a disproportionate response to see your parent talking to a friend and say, are we going to split up? Am I going to have to call this person dad? Um, so I think to kind of stop and say, like, hey, what's going on? Let's check in. How can I reassure you? What are you afraid of? Um, in those moments will we'll hopefully um, help resolve some of these, like, clearly deep-seated fears that are that are something she's dealing with. Yeah. I think children at that age, you're, you know, you're just starting to figure out that there are a lot of bad things happening in the world. And it's not that they're just nebulous bad things. It's like you understand that there are greater implications to this and it gets really scary sometimes. And so I definitely think that that reassurance is going to be helpful to just be like, hey, we have friends and we're always going to have friends. We're not going to separate just because we see our friends from time to time. And, you know, sometimes people do get divorced, but we're not splitting up. And no matter what, we love you a lot. Yeah. And I think when you say you kind of ask, like, did I make a mistake? I think maybe the one thing that you could have done differently or that you can stress now is not um, 
we love one another, but we're attracted to both genders in a way that could kind of imply to a little kid, like, anything could happen, um, which is not what you're saying. What you're saying is like, well, both your dad and I have dated men and women before. Um, so I think at least for talking to an eight-year-old, especially an eight-year-old who kind of sees divorce on every corner um, to really stress, like, what that means is that I have loved both men and women, and so has your father, and we love one another and are happily married now. Um, and, you know, you can kind of like gently redirect like, well, you know, even if I didn't, you know, have an experience with both men and women, you know, <laughs> no, 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 that's actually too much because it's like I could still leave your father for another man. <laughs> um, no, like you do not need to continue to introduce the the possibility of, of you guys splitting up to your kid. Um, but, yeah, frame it in terms of you're explaining your history to to her. Right. Like um, rather than sort of more nuanced ongoing things that would be easier to talk about with an older child, um, but that for an eight-year-old is just like a little much. Just like, here's what it means. It means I've had boyfriends and girlfriends, and it means that now I'm married to your father and I love him very much. Yep. And this will not be terrifying and, you know, upsetting to her forever. She's not going to be like 14 years old and still like asking these same questions. Like eventually, um, you know, if you're calm and you're patient and reassuring, this will pass for her. But yeah, I think framing it like I could still be attracted to men and women now for an eight-year-old was probably um, at least some of what put it in her mind of, oh man, are you guys going to split up? Yep. But yeah, I'm just I'm just sorry. It's really hard to be that age and to feel that like panicked and worried like that any moment your family is going to split up and you're going to be asked to like deal with some stranger. Um, that's really hard. Yeah, it's very difficult. Being anxious is hard and being a child is hard and being both is really hard because you have so little control over your life when you're eight. Yeah, you're trying to figure stuff out and you know that you have some autonomy but not enough to really control the direction of your life. And it's a very disorienting feeling. Yeah. I feel like I'm going from being very gentle with a young child to being slightly less gentle with a young child um, in our next letter, which is not to say that I want to bring down the hammer, but um, there's a lot going on in this letter. Uh, The subject line of this letter is simply, Dad killed the neighbor's dog. So that's where we're starting. Dear Prudence, my parents bought a beach house along a small row of houses. There aren't many other neighbors around for miles, so the people on that block let their dogs wander around outside. Over Christmas, my dad saw a neighbor's 16-pound terrier chasing my 10-year-old twins. It was barking like mad, and the kids were freaked out. My dad picked up some driftwood and threw it in the terrier's direction to scare it away. He hates that dogs roam free, because some of them do bark, although none are aggressive. He threw a particularly hefty piece of wood, and it crushed but did not immediately kill the dog. It was one of the worst things I've ever seen. My dad put the dog out of its misery. He felt horrible, as he never intended to harm it, but he justified his actions because of how it was behaving toward the twins. The owners were devastated and furious, but allowed that my dad was trying to protect his family. Seeing them is still tense and difficult. Initially, I thought the twins were traumatized because of what they'd seen. They were having nightmares and blamed themselves for what happened. Eventually, they confessed that they'd been taunting and provoking the terrier that day, which caused it to chase them. They never anticipated how angry my dad would get, and they feel responsible for what happened. Now my husband and I have this horrible secret. The terrier was likely scared and defending itself. 
Our twins are terrified they'll go to jail or be despised if anyone finds out they were bothering the terrier. My husband worries that the neighbors will take legal action if they find out what really happened, but I'm sick at the thought that they think their dog chased the twins for no reason. Should we bury the secret even from my dad or confess? Wow. Yeah. That escalated quickly. Um, wow. Yeah. I, I think, you know, obviously, like, everyone involved is on some level aware of this is a really bad situation, right? Like, the twins are very upset. Uh, the letter writer feels really guilty and sick at heart. Um, I don't want to respond in a way that's like, yeah, wow, this is the worst problem I've ever heard of. Um, but I think one thing that's important to bear in mind is that even if um, even if your twins hadn't been teasing the dog, I think your father's response was still pretty disproportionate. Yes, I agree. Y- your girls are 10 years old. Um, they were not in any immediate danger from a barking 16-pound terrier. You know, hurling a piece of wood heavy enough to crush a 16-pound dog is, that's not like a stick, right? Like, he wasn't waving something. Yeah, that's like a like a hollowed-out log or something. And also, 16 pounds is, while scary at times, not a very large dog. Right, and I'm not saying that, like, again, like, that there could never be a situation in which it would have been wrong for your dad to try to, to defend the girls against the dog or to try to get it to leave them alone. Simply that, given what was happening, to have picked up and thrown a piece of driftwood large enough to crush a dog was pretty intense. And I think part of the clue there is, you say, the girls had no clue how angry your dad would get. Which, again, suggests that he was not, like, reacting out of, like, oh, man, I've just got to defend the girls. But, like, irritation, frustration. You say that he's often um, upset with seeing those dogs roaming on the beach. Like, I I, I gotta say... I think your dad, on some level, responded reflexively out of anger rather than, oh, my goodness, these children are in danger. I have to protect them. Mm -hmm. Like, I think part of why you all feel really bad is you know your dad hates the dogs on the beach. You know he was angry and irritated. He His first response was to pick up a log big enough to crush an animal and threw it directly at it. I don't think it was quite... An accident. I mean, it, 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 I'm not saying that he just like strolled outside and was like, awesome, I get to murder a dog today. But I think it was one of those things where he very clearly did not think what is a logical first step to take here or even like what's an OK first step to take here. I think he went straight for fuck this. Yep. And then afterwards was like, oh, wow, that was a big response. Wow. So their question of should we bury this secret, uh, short answer, no, you should not. It is entirely possible that the neighbors will take legal action against you and your family uh, for being responsible for killing their dog. But I just, 10 years old is old enough to know that you should not be taunting animals. Right. And that that's the part that sticks out to me the most. It's like, if you're, you know, three or four it doesn't that that you know decision making probably hasn't sunk into your brain yet but at 10 years old you know that you shouldn't be bothering other people's pets and so even if they could not have anticipated their grandfather's response like they knew beforehand that what they were doing was wrong and part of being a parent is teaching your children that actions have 
consequences, whether intended or not. And you have to deal with the like learning to deal with those consequences is part of growing up as uncomfortable as it will be for everyone involved in this. Yeah, I think a couple of things. One is, yeah, absolutely. Talk to your kids uh, about what they told you, like sit them down and, you know, they're, they're clearly already experiencing a crisis of conscience, which is a good thing. It means that they feel a lot of regret. It means they weren't like awesome. We got to tease and and and, and taunt a dog into being killed. Like that is a good sign that your kids regret what they did and that they are learning to become, you know, moral agents. Yeah, they're not like Sid from Toy Story. Right, right. But to just really walk through like – um I know that you guys are feeling really distressed right now. Um, I want to know more about, you know, how did you tease the dog? Why were you doing it? W- what did you think at the time? And and just try to get more information, like help help them develop by asking questions about, like, what were you thinking? And some of the answer might be, I guess I really wasn't. Um, and, and to just kind of talk through what that day was like for them and, and how badly they were teasing the dog. Um that's just good information for you to have. Um, and then I think, again, before before you go talk to the neighbor, I think it's always great to get a little legal advice just because you are contemplating sharing information that may open you up to a lawsuit. So, you know, I, I think you should get in touch with a lawyer and just say, you know, here's the sort of facts of the situation. What do you recommend? What do you not recommend? Um, which is not to say if a lawyer says, admit nothing, that that should be what you do. Um, just that it is good to get more specific advice from an expert in this field before making any decisions. Mm-hmm. And and talk to your dad, too. I think talk talk to your, like, one of the things that you can do for your girls, at least right now, is model, like, what do you do when you've done something that you regret and you're afraid of the consequences? Like, um, what do you do besides just feel bad forever? Um, how do you how do you take appropriate steps to try to make amends and figure out what truth can be brought to light, whether or not sharing something would do more harm than otherwise. Right. And I think this is also an opportunity, um, depending on how your father, the children's grandfather reacts, uh, to talk about uh, healthy anger management and healthy coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's always a valuable lesson to learn as a child and as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. You know, talk to your dad about like, uh, this is just so hard because it's like, I, I just kind of don't buy that he just was reacting on instinct, like just all the little clues about um, how much he hates seeing the dogs run out and the fact that it was it was that heavy and the fact that the dog was not like actually close to touching anyone, just just running and barking. But but yeah, talk to talk to your dad about just like, you know, how are you doing with this? Um, talk talk to him about, you know, have the girls, I think, tell him what they were doing. I think it's appropriate for them to tell him. Um, and you can be there and, 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 and hopefully be there to talk through everything. And, like, hopefully your dad will not respond in, like, an over-the-top way to them. If if you do have reason to be concerned that he might um, respond uh, in a way that is threatening towards the girls, um, then that is maybe a reason not to do it. I don't I don't know. But, yeah, I think I think that that, that will go away towards, like, dispelling the nightmares is telling the truth. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then then the, the, the thing to be on the table after that conversation is, do we tell the neighbors? Um, and if so, how do we do it? Um, and, and if we do it, what, what do we want to say in terms of, like, what are we trying to, to, to do in terms of making it right? Like, are we apologizing? Right. How do you begin to make amends with right. the neighbors who were justifiably still upset about the death of their pet? 
Right. And that making amends here is not the same as like getting them to forgive us like that. Right. Probably um, won't happen. If it does, it's not something that you can guarantee. You can't control it. But to think through like, you know, were there funeral costs or medical bills for having like their pet's body disposed of? Um, can you offer to pay for that? Do you want the girls to say something? Do you want your father to say something? Is your father willing to say something? Because, you know, he's a separate person, right? Like, he's not your child. If he's just like, look, I didn't know that. I would still do it again. I don't think I was acting out of anger. I believe that I was justified in what I did. You certainly cannot make him apologize in the same way that you can guide your girls to apologize, but figure out whether or not he's willing to be a part of that. And if he's not, he's not. And, and, and yeah, you know, be prepared for, you know, you know, your 10-year-olds are not going to go to jail. Um, I, I think that's something that you can reassure them on that front. Like, that's a, a case of, like, kids not fully understanding, like, how these sorts of things work. Like, that's, yeah, that's that's not going to happen. And, and you know, you'll have to weigh the pros and cons of, like, there's not a lot that your neighbors can do with this information on the one hand. And yet, on the other hand... You know, there's a reason that your girls are having trouble sleeping, and that's because they've withheld really important information. Yep. Right? Like, it's it's hard. I, like, I want to say, like, oh, you don't have to tell them because, it's you know, the dog's dead, so it's, it's all moot anyways. And, yeah, you'll have to weigh because it is new information that will maybe be more painful for them. Um, it also seems like, you know, you say you're sick. You're sick at the thought of allowing them to persist in this um, mistaken belief that their dog was at fault. Um, it's just a really hard situation. I'm sorry. I can't say 100% you have to or you don't have to, but I do think you should talk to your daughters. I think you should be there when your daughters talk to your father. I think you should consult a lawyer. I think all those things are absolutely next right steps that you can take. Um, and then as a family, um, you can you can work through, are we going to tell the neighbors? If so, how are we going to tell them? How are we going to apologize? Um, what can we take? What steps can we take towards attempting to, at the very least, paying for the wrong we've done? Um, and then accepting the fact that sometimes you can tell the truth, say you're sorry, and somebody might not forgive you. And how do you, you know, carry on? Because that's, you know, they, they, they may not. I, I got to say, if I found out my neighbors were teasing my dog and then killed it, um, even if they apologized beautifully and then paid for his medical costs, I don't know that I would immediately be able to say, hey, it's okay. I appreciate that you're doing the right thing. It's worth doing regardless, but um, your your neighbors may not immediately or ever be okay with it. Right. Oh, man. We're going we're gonna to get a lot of letters about this one, I think. Yeah. Um, and I certainly look forward, you know, if, if anybody out there has been in a similar situation, let us know whether if it happened to like a pet of yours or if you ended up like killing an animal because you thought you were defending a person and then later found out that you weren't like, you know, if, if anyone else has been in this situation, please get in touch. I would love to hear from you. This is a very sad, specific letter. I'm sorry. This is really intense. This is really, really intense. Let's let's do something that's not fun exactly, but just garden variety, advice column staple, jealous girlfriend, no dead pets, um, nothing along those lines, just good old-fashioned <laughs> fights over the kitchen table about sexy friends. All right, let's go. Would you Would you read this one? Yeah. Thank you. Dear Prudence, I've been dating a terrific woman for nearly a year. We have a great time together, and she recently moved in with me. I think she might even be the one. 
However, we have one major issue. She has a male friend she acts very inappropriately with whenever he's around. He gives her lingering hugs, engages her in provocative dancing, and brags about how hot and sexy she, she thinks he is. Hot and sexy are both in quotes, for the record. I hate this, but every time I try to discuss it with her, it turns into a huge argument with her accusing me of being controlling slash jealous. Meanwhile, my girlfriend flips out any time I so much as say hello to this guy's fiancé. My girlfriend accusing me of cheating on her, or at the very least flirting with her, flirting with the guy's fiancé, I assume. And from what I understand, the guy's fiancé, the guy gives his fiancé a hard time too. There's so many parts to this letter. During one such argument with my girlfriend, when I dared to bring up her behavior with the other guy, she had the gall to claim it was okay because they're just friends. According to her, it's inappropriate for me to speak to this other woman because we're obviously interested in each other. I'm at my wit's end. I love my girlfriend and I don't want to lose her, but this feels like an insurmountable obstacle. What can I do? Signed, Jealous of Jealous Girlfriend. This felt like briefly, briefly watching Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It felt like watching The Young and the Restless with my mom when I was a teenager. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, this sounds frustrating. It sounds like everyone involved kind of feels like their partner is kind of cheating on them. And I have a hard time with letters like this because I feel like usually what the letter writer wants is for me to say, like, objectively, one person is doing one wrong thing, and that is my official ruling. And it just kind of sounds like these four people maybe don't have great boundaries with each other and kind of don't trust each other and don't really listen when their partner says, like, this behavior bothers me. Yeah. Which is a shame. If it doesn't violate the rules of Dear Prudence, I am going to quote uh, one of my other favorite podcasts, which is The Read. Please do. Break up with him. Break up with her. That's the quote? Just break up? Uh, yes. So that's uh, they have an advice segment on their show, and that is a recurring theme is just, what should I do? Break up with him. Break up with her. These people don't trust each other at all. And I have a hard time believing that she's the one if whenever you tell her the thing that you're doing when you're interacting with this other person bothers me so much. And she's just like, well, you're only bothered by it because you're actually interested in his girlfriend. There's just, why are you doing this to yourself? Yeah, I mean, if you two don't have a way to talk to one another about how to handle feelings of jealousy when they come up or how to talk to somebody about, hey, this makes me feel uncomfortable in a way that's not you're trying to cheat on me and you're bad and I'm good or, well, I can do this because you've done this with some other person at some other time. Like, that's not a good thing. Even if this one friend moved to the moon tomorrow, you guys would still have an issue. And you know, I'm not going to go with break up right now because I think it's at least worth trying to talk out without scorekeeping. And that may not be possible. And if it's not possible, then yeah, then the fact that this feels like an insurmountable obstacle and you are at your wit's end probably means that uh, at some point you will need to break up because if you're engaged and you just moved in together, you're only going to get more involved in each other's lives. And if you're already at your wit's end about this and you can't make any headway, you know, better to do it now than after the wedding. Yeah, there's just so much happening in this letter. And I, everyone involved, I don't know, it, maybe there's like a missing layer here, but 
it seems like they're kind of acting out of spite in a bit, like in a way. Again, why are you doing this to yourself? Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, like when I dared to bring up her behavior and she had the gall to claim it was okay. Like there's definitely a lot of like one-upsmanship here. Yes, that's ex- one-upsmanship is the perfect word for this behavior. It's um it's very childish. Yeah. Yeah, and and I just wonder like is this the only time you two are like this with each other? Like, why is this the thing that brings up you both kind of stonewall each other? Like you say, she flips out every time I so much as say hello to this guy's fiance. I'm just curious, like, is that true? Maybe maybe it is. Maybe it really is. Maybe your girlfriend is being super shitty here and she, like, drapes herself over this dude whenever he's around and all you have to do is say hi to his fiance and she loses it. But I'm also curious, like... Do you then, once you see your girlfriend doing these things, your fiancé doing these things, do you then flirt with his fiancé because you feel hurt and upset and then kind of try to pass it off as not that bad because you were doing it first and worse? Like, is that a dynamic that's going on? And and try to be honest with yourself about that. Like, is a part of me trying to get a little bit of my own back um, by leveraging this guy's fiancé to make my girlfriend jealous? Um And I don't know. Only you can answer that question. Only you know your motivations and your behavior. You do not go into detail about how you engage with this woman. But I think you're going with just break up. No hope. Yeah, don't stress yourself out over this. Well, I mean, breakups are stressful, but less stressful in the long run than staying in a relationship where at least one party is attempting to make another jealous, if not all four parties involved somehow attempting to spite each other in this very strange round robin. Yeah. Oh, like, why are you guys spending time with this couple? Like, ugh. also, I apologize. I think I, I, I misread some of this because I acted as if the letter writer was engaged to this woman when, in fact, the other couple is engaged. This couple just moved in together. Yeah. The letter writer of couple number one has recently, his girlfriend has recently moved in, and then the opposing couple i guess <laughs> yeah um, opposing engaged counsel. and now they're in this uh this locking of horns multiple love triangle overlapping i don't know some kind of geometric shape that has to do with love that is not exactly a triangle yeah i i think the the one thing that I would recommend trying before splitting up is, you know, ask your girlfriend, hey, here's what I would love to do. And and I want to acknowledge my part in this. Previously, when we have tried to talk about this other couple, um, we have both kind of gotten into like we each pick our corner and try to defend ourselves and make the other person feel bad. And and I, I, I've been doing that, too. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to convince you that you're wrong and I'm right or or get into an argument about whether or not either of us has crossed any kind of objective line. I don't want to do that. I don't want to argue about this. I want to have an honest conversation about how this guy makes me feel. Um, and and what, what I feel is this, which is that um, this guy, you know, touches you a lot, goes out of his way to dance with you in a really intense way, brags about how attracted he thinks you are to him, and that makes me feel threatened and insecure. Does that register with you when I say that? Like, I don't want to control you. I don't want to tell you not to be friends with this guy. But I'm just trying to be honest with you about how that particular behavior makes me feel. Um, 
Does that make sense? Is that okay for me to say if I just like literally list what I'm feeling without trying to like, you know, get into a lot of one-upsmanship with you? Do you have a response to that? Um, do, do you think that that makes sense that I feel that way? Can you, can you help me out here? Can you meet me halfway? Um, and I would like to know, like, what about my interactions with that guy's fiance bother you? Like, is there anything that we have done or said to one another that has felt hurtful to you or like I have sought to make you jealous? Because if so, I don't want to do that. I want to talk to you about my feelings for you. I don't want to triangulate them through this other couple, which is not the shape of a triangle, but you know what I mean? Yeah. And maybe you can get somewhere with that. Like if you just lead with the vulnerability and the very simple statements of feeling. But if you can't get anywhere and if she comes back with the same, nope, he's just a friend. We have never behaved inappropriately, but you want to have sex with his fiance and it's just real obvious, you know, then then you get to decide how many more times you would like to have that conversation if it's not possible to have a different one. And then you should probably break up. That sounds good. Yeah, and then watch uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and congratulate yourself on your <laughs> early escape. Like, yeah, man. Or at least the um, uh, SNL sketch where they all, for some reason, did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf while dressed as hamsters in a hamster cage. I need to go home and look up that sketch uh, when we're finished recording. It was just the same. It was, it was literally just like near verbatim quotes from Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf while they were dressed as hamsters. I, I, I enjoyed it. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm a simple, simple person with simple tastes. I will definitely have to look into this. Uh, the dressed as hamsters part is what sold me. Yeah, yeah. And there's not a lot of jokes about hamster behavior. I think there's like one joke about like eating your children and maybe one thing about drinking from a big suspended bottle. Um, but mostly it's just the plot, which I really appreciate. All right, this next one. Oh, boy, howdy. Do I have some thoughts about this one? Um, I chose not to edit it. It's a long letter, and I kind of want the letter writer to really get a sense of how much time they have spent worrying about this. (laughs) Because I think that they should spend less time worrying about this. So that's where I'm coming from. The subject here is (sighs) the office mooch. Dear Prudence, my office generously provides packaged snacks, fruit, and occasional lunches for things like birthdays, weddings, and baby showers. I have one coworker who always sneaks in and gobbles everything up. After a recent office bridal shower, there was food left over that was kept in the communal fridge for everyone to share over the next few days. The next day after the shower, this coworker took it upon himself to eat every last leftover meatball. I counted at least 15 on his plate and about eight slices of Italian bread. The worst part is that he didn't bring so much as a card for the couple that's getting married. Our communal snack order that used to last about a month before he started now lasts half as long, which has made management lock up the food and ration it so it doesn't disappear quite so quickly. Someone brought in cupcakes the other day. There were six left when he came in, and he was seen eating all of them over the course of about three hours. I could go on. I bet you could. Sorry, I don't normally interject my own commentary. But it's very clear, letter writer, that you have been keeping detailed notes. The situation is made more complicated by the fact that we know he and his family are operating on a tight budget. He frequently talks about how expensive things are, even though his complaints are often about prices I consider to be pretty standard. $4 for a smoothie, $2 for a bottle of juice, etc., It feels rude to say anything, but this behavior comes across as inconsiderate, not an occasional indulgence or a necessity. 
He never comes in without a lunch and often brings in leftovers, so I'm sure they're having dinner at home. They live with family and are buying a house in the near future, so they have to have at least some discretionary income. He's a rather large man who has recently been talking about trying to eat better at the advice of his doctor, but he ignores bowls of fruits or trays of salad in favor of half a dozen cupcakes or 15 meatballs. The whole thing is rather frustrating. Is this something that management or HR should discuss with him? It's not like he's doing anything explicitly wrong or bothering people to give them their food. But multiple coworkers have commented on his rudeness. It's awkward when someone something has been brought in for everyone to share, but he finishes it all before some people even get a chance. Do you have any advice as to what I can say that won't embarrass him? Oh, man. <laughs> I This person does have what seems to be a legitimate problem, but the length of the letter, I just can't stop laughing. I, I mean, I do have some advice as to what you can say that won't embarrass this guy, which is nothing. Don't catalog what this dude is eating. Yeah, there's a lot of quantification in here. 15 meatballs, 8 slices of Italian bread, 6 cupcakes. I just... $2 for juice. On the one hand, right, we have the the office faux pas this guy has committed, right? Which is that, you know, he eats food from the communal fridge, right? He's not taking individual food someone's brought for lunch. He is taking food that is communal. He takes more than other people do, and he takes it sometimes for events that he didn't really participate in, which is, like, I get it. That's on the list of, like, office wrongs. That's a mild irritation, Um, possibly moderate irritation, depending on how good the food in your office is. On the other hand, the degree to which you, letter writer, are obsessively cataloging his, like, at-home financial situation, his size, his diet, what he should and should be eat, shouldn't be eating. His conversations with his doctor. Whether he should or shouldn't be surprised when a smoothie is $4. Like, you are spending so much more energy on this guy than you need to. Like, my best advice to you is if you really want a couple of meatballs— put some in a Tupperware, and put your name on it. It doesn't sound like he's going after people's individually wrapped food. Um, If some other people sometimes don't get cupcakes and they're frustrated, that's a bummer, but that's not your problem. You don't need to fix that. And also, our lives have, like, our lives and our health have never necessarily been made better by office cupcakes. Um, They're delicious, but they're not exactly the best thing in the world. So maybe he's performing a public service. It's just not not going down a good path for you or for him. Um, you know, management has started rationing the communal snack order. Okay, great. So that's been addressed, right? Like management mm-hmm. is handling um, the apportionment of the communal snacks. Somebody is looking after that. Um, the idea of going to HR and saying anything along the lines of, I think my coworker is rather large, and should have fewer pieces of Italian bread at work. That's a quick route to sensitivity training like, at do you, best. Do you hear? You, you got to listen to yourself when you say those things. That's just not something you need to be concerning yourself with. Um, especially when you, I, I just, I got to tell you, like, you know he's operating on a tight budget, but then you're just, like, paying attention to his comings and goings in the kitchen as if you are, like, on Oz trying to find out who's sneaking drugs in through the kitchen. Like, 
um, you're just like, well, he brings in leftovers, so I know he has dinner at home, and oh, I know that he lives with his family to save money, and I think juice is reasonably priced. Like, you are just, man. You're doing way too much. You know he's got money problems. Um, you don't know how much of the food at home he's able to eat. You don't know if he's setting some of that aside for his kids. You don't know. And so in those moments when you find yourself tempted to stare at him and speculate about what he ate last night and what he's eating right now and what he might eat in 20 minutes, um, just, just let it go. Just say to yourself, my desire to obsess over this dude's eating habits is totally disproportionate from any, like, faux pas he may have committed. Like, sometimes he eats a lot of cupcakes. Okay. Who among us haven't hasn't taken more than our fair share of cupcakes or office meatballs whenever the occasion calls for it? Yeah, it just doesn't merit your interference. And this thing of, like, he's been talking about trying to eat better, but I'm so frustrated that he doesn't eat a tray full of salad and I want to talk about it with HR or management. No. That's... Have you ever seen an office salad? Those things are really sad looking, even the best ones. Yeah. And it's just like even if somebody chooses to occasionally share like budgetary concerns or dietary concerns that they or their doctor may have, um, that does not mean that you need to later um, offer them advice on the basis of that. Like if you don't want to have personal conversations with this guy and he wants to talk about what his doctor is saying, feel free to just say like, oh, good luck with that. I got to get back to work. Just – you know, don't don't continue to be this involved with his personal life. Just yeah, I found myself wondering, like, how much of your day, letter writer, is spent tracking this guy's movements versus doing work? And I'm just like, how much more work could you be getting done? I guess it depends on your office environment and like the nature of your job, but just like. How much more could you be getting done or, like, how much better could you be doing your job if you weren't spending this time tracking this guy's 15 uh, Swedish meatballs and, like, five slices of Italian bread? Yeah, it's a little too Javert, you know? Yes, yes, it is. Um, You say he's not doing anything explicitly wrong or harassing people for their food. Great, then that is the answer to your question. Do I need to talk to HR or management? No, I don't. Um, there's there's the actual thing he's done, which is, you know, admittedly mildly irritating. Um, but also it sounds like it's coming from a place of um, potential like food insecurity at home. And management is already doing what they need to to address it, to make sure that the communal snacks are like apportioned fairly. Um, so that's being handled. That does not require further intervention on your part. And the rest of this stuff I, I got to say, I think there's some real discomfort in you with the idea of somebody maybe being poor or maybe being big. And there's a real anxiety in your letter about how somebody should respond to those things and how you should be able to control and manage those conditions. Um, and I just don't think that that's going to take you down a place of productive, joyful usefulness. I think that's going to take you down a road where um, you make a lot of assumptions where some, you know, classism and fat phobia are going to come into play, um, where you try to make yourself responsible for something that you can't be responsible for, and where you try to behave as if something is like an objective injustice against the very concept of right and wrong um, versus just somebody who sounds like is in kind of a difficult situation um, and has some, you know, coping strategies that just don't need to 
worry you. They just don't. If you really want a couple slices of Italian bread, wrap them up in a paper towel, put your name on it. Um, If you didn't want the bread and somebody else did, let them worry about it. You don't have to be the bread police. You don't have to be the Javert. Um, This guy should not be your Jean Valjean. (laughs) You're fine. (laughs) 24601, I saw you steal those Swedish meatballs. Put them back. Yeah, don't be, you know, whenever in, whenever in life you have an opportunity to not be Javert, take that opportunity. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so uh, speaking actually of like cataloging other people's actual or perceived needs and, and, and making um, reflexive snap judgments about it, that's kind of the theme of this next letter too. Um, I, I think the theme of our episode today is maybe do a little less. Yes. For everyone. Would, would you please read this letter? Uh, yes. The subject is inheritance. Dear Prudence, my youngest granddaughter was in a car accident that left her in a state where she will never be able to live on her own. Her mother has quit her job to take care of her and they sold their house to help pay for medical bills. My husband and I paid for all of our children's college educations and weddings. We have been very generous to our grandchildren who are all grown now. My husband and I have amassed quite a large estate. We plan on leaving the majority of it in a trust for our granddaughter's care. We wanted to make this known to our children so there would be no surprises and so we could see exactly what sentimental items they wanted. The response we got was so ugly that it brought me to tears. One son and his daughters called our plans a scam by their uncle and aunt and accused them of using their disabled daughter to win, quote, sympathy points. Another granddaughter complained that she needed help because of her anxiety disorder. She's 28 and lives at home. Half of my family has become so money-grubbing that I don't even want to look them in the eye. My daughter-in-law even apologized to me about her daughter's situation causing the family rift. My husband is so furious, he refuses to to acknowledge our children and grandchildren who oppose the trust. I feel like my heart is breaking into pieces. Worse, both of our granddaughters who called the trust a scam are pregnant. Our first great-grandchildren are on the way, and we can't even celebrate it. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? Oh, man. Yikes. Yeah, I, um... It's always sad when I get a letter like this that's just, like, a parent is trying to do something kind. And their adult children, who are all, like, relatively well-established in life, are just furious about it. Yeah, they all seem to be all of the adult children and grandchildren, excluding the grandchild who was in the car accident. The letter writer makes no mention of them being in uh, dire financial straits. And I don't, like, yes, it would be nice to have that money, but also if you see that one of your family members has a much greater need than you do, why wouldn't you want them to get that help? Like, she will, again, she'll never be able to live by herself. And that's a very serious financial imposition that no one could have planned for. So why wouldn't you want your family to do as much as they possibly could, especially your grandparents who have, you know, by the accounts of this letter, have already done a lot for their children and grandchildren. Yeah, no, the letter says we've been very generous to our other grown grandchildren. And I I know that this isn't always the case, but it is sad how often I will get a letter that starts with we've been really generous to our grandchildren and one is in a very dire circumstance and wants help. And the, the, the rest of the question is never everyone's so excited and grateful for all the help they've already gotten. They're just wanting to know how they can help support like their sibling in this time of need. It's always like 
nope, everyone's like bringing out their checkbooks and their receipts and their ledgers and pointing to like, well, five years ago, we got $50 fewer than everyone else. And, you know, the time for us to call you to account is now like. You bought me the Jimmy Choo's whenever I told you I wanted the Louboutins and now I'm going to like hold it over you until your grave. Yeah, man. I mean, like. You're not entitled to your parents' money just because they're dying. Like, they get to dispose of it however they want. Um, it's it's one thing if, like, your parents are, like, wielding an inheritance, like, effectively to sow dissent among siblings or to, like, you know, lord it over an unfavorite or something. Like, obviously, that can be really painful. But But even in those situations, like, you're not – I think you will have a better life if you kind of operate on the assumption that – any money you get from your parents toward the end of their life is a bonus and not something to which you are entitled um, and can be cheated out of. Exactly. Like, be happy that you've gotten this much so far because billions of us don't expect to get anything from our parents when they pass away. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's not as if they were going to just do it behind your back and you were going to go to the reading of the will after their funeral and find out that you got nothing, you know, and it's not as if they... I don't know, like pulled a Joan Crawford and wrote you out of the will at the last second. Um, no, they told you in advance to presumably prepare you, but to also let you know that this is why we're doing this. And they also gave their children, you know, and grandchildren, I assume, their choice of sentimental items from their estate. It's not like you, it's not like they got cut off completely. Yeah. And I mean, I just, I'm going to go ahead and take you at face value when you say that your granddaughter is not going to be able to live on her own and that her mother had to quit her job to care for her and they sold the house to pay for medical bills. Like, I I, I kind of can't fathom how someone could see those things happening and say, ah, a classic scam. It's a very expensive, painful scam. Yeah, I think this is one of those things where because you are so clearly in the right and your children and other grandchildren are responding so badly, it's going to feel like if I can just defend and justify what I'm doing enough, they will come to their senses. Um, And I think this is one of those situations where you should limit the amount of time you you spend saying, actually, it's not like – this is just not really an argument that I think is is worth having. And obviously it's especially painful given that two of your um, grandchildren are pregnant. Um, but I, I, I think as painful as this is, like you can't give in to their demands. Um, you cannot um, change your decision, which is a really good kind one. Um, you can't abandon this this part of your family that's in need and you can't, like, give away the money that you've... I don't think there's anything you should do other than just say, like, I think you will eventually regret this stance. Um, I encourage you not to do this. And, yeah, just, yeah, just, just like, when somebody says something like, oh, she's using her her daughter for sympathy points, like, all you can say to that is, I really think someday you're going to regret saying that. I really do. Um, and to just leave it alone at that, right? Like not to get into an argument about it, but to just kind of acknowledge that that's a really terrible thing to say. Um, and it's very clearly at odds with reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you just can't really engage with that. Um, when you have another granddaughter who wants to bring her own um, personal emotional difficulties into this, 
Um, again, I don't think it's going to be helpful for you to get into an argument about whether or not her anxiety disorder is real and painful. I think the only thing there to say is just, um, you know, we are not making any sort of referendum on anybody else's life or struggles. Um, this has to do with very real medical bills that have made it impossible for someone to work um, and have required them to sell their house. This decision's final, and we're not going to change it, and it's not up for debate. And and that's the only thing you need to say. You don't need to, like, get into any sort of discussion about whether or not she has struggles in her own life or um, a- anything along those lines, just to kind of say, like, here's a real need. Um, it's really important to us. We were able to help. We're really glad to be able to help. We're still glad, even though you've decided that um, we're somehow doing it to hurt you. But that's it. That's final. If you can't let that go, there's nothing we can do to help. And that's just hard. Like, I I understand where your husband's coming from. I understand why he's not willing to talk to the kids who are trying to, like, talk him out of helping his, like, grandchild who's who's in profound pain and requires what sounds like pretty constant care. Like, I would would be furious, too. And I don't think you should try to make him. um, Obviously, there's going to be a part of you that's going to want to just, like, get everyone in a room and, and to talk it out. And I think you can always hope for and push for eventual um, apology and reconciliation, but you can't force that right now. Um, and it can't come before those relatives are able to stop causing the harm that they're causing and apologize. Right. And as far as your uh, upcoming great-grandchildren go, I think it would be great if you just you know, remind your grandchildren, I still love you in spite of all of this, um, and I would very much like to be involved in your children's lives to whatever extent that may be possible and, you know, maybe send a gift or something whenever the babies are born. I doubt that your grandchildren will return the gift unless they are just very stuck in their spiteful ways. But in fact, if they do and if they choose to block you out of their life, then um, it's more their loss than yours, I would think. Um because there are so many people who wish that they could have that relationship with older generations of their family. And it's not because it's not for a lack of effort on your part. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think to let the people know that the door is open, that you love them. um, And if they ever want to talk in a non-horrible way, um, you're available. But to not apologize, um, to not get drawn into justification, um, to not give any ground to their argument that they have somehow been shortchanged, you know, any attempt to have any sort of relationship on the basis of questioning the decision that you made is, I think, just going to be a non-starter. Um, and this is really painful, and I'm really, really sorry. And and I'm so sorry, especially for your granddaughter and her mother, um, that she felt like she had to apologize to you. I can't imagine um, having to quit your job and sell your house to care for your daughter after an accident like that and then also feel like all of your siblings had turned against you and considered you to be a scam artist um, for requiring financial help to pay your medical bills. Like, that's just greedy and cruel. That's so gross. Man, that's, yeah, I I get why your husband's as mad as he is. I really do. And I hope that um, you guys are able to maybe see a counselor for even just a couple of months to kind of work through the grief. Because in some ways, you're grieving the loss of these relationships with your family members because the character that's on display from them right now is just bad and dark and selfish and money-grubbing. And that's just got to feel hard to feel like, man, how did my kids and grandkids turn out like this? I did not seek to raise people who felt this way. 
or behaved this way. And I hope someday you receive really heartfelt apologies. And if you don't, um, you have at least done something really good and useful um, to a relative of yours who is in serious need. And that's a really good thing and not to be overlooked. Very true. Yeah. Well, man. Okay, everybody, do less. That you know, just just do less. Don't. That's the moral of the story today. Do less. Don't rope coupled friends into a weird triangulation of jealousy and insecurity. Don't demand that your parents um, give you money if a relative of yours gets in a car accident and needs help paying medical bills. Don't catalog how many pieces of bread your coworkers eat, as long as it's not your bread. And definitely don't kill dogs unless you have to. <laughs> that's a sentence that's weird feel, to say. I feel very bad for laughing at that last sentence, but I just, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know, <laughs> really ask yourself, is anyone in imminent danger? And if the answer is no, I, I think it is good to not um, to not do that. But but all of these people uh, on the on the bright side have the opportunity to turn about and do the right thing, to, to um, repent, uh, to choose differently, to make amends, and even if they don't receive direct forgiveness, to live their life on a different sort of basis. And that's a good thing. We all have the opportunity to turn things around, and I hope that we all take it. Aria, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you again. I had such a great time. Um, yeah. Do less. Yes. Unless you're Beyonce, in which case, please do more. That's the thing. That's the thing. All right, friend, get out of here. All right, bye. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Listener.